You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Interstate Batteries. Interstate Batteries has been a proud supporter of the Sportsman's Nation since day one. So if you need batteries for your truck, batteries for your trail cameras, TV remote controls, flashlights, you name it, Interstate Batteries has what you need. They have thousands of retail locations all over the United States. So stop in, talk to a battery specialist, or for more information, visit interstatebatteries.com. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Iowa Sportsman Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Johnson, and we got a really interesting topic for you guys today. We're going to be talking with Jim Coffey of the Iowa Department of Natural Resources, and with spring coming up real fast, we're going to be talking about turkeys today. We're going to be talking a little bit about what Jim does researching the uh, elusive turkey here in North America, specifically in Iowa. We're going to talk about hunting hunting strategies based off of you know their biology. We're going to talk about what they eat. We're going to talk about the hens and their nesting and the breeding cycle and a whole bunch of other interesting facts about the Iowa wild turkey. Uh, I don't know about you, but there's something about chasing a gobbler in the spring that just fires me up. Um, it is a second to deer and deer hunting, but there's something about turkey hunting where you get the ability to knock off the winter rust and get out there and, you know, whether you hunt in a blind, whether you hunt from, uh, the ground and you're mobile or whether you're by yourself or with a group of guys or friends or family turkey hunting is an absolutely awesome fun time and it is also a great way to get others interested in hunting i think turkey um, when it comes to finding more hunters i think turkey is that getting their foot in the door turkey hunting they're they're at times vocal they're easier to hunt um you can move around a little bit more and what i mean by that is uh, you don't have to take you know you don't have to take turkey hunting so serious as you do let's say maybe deer hunting with this the whole scent game but turkey hunting i i feel is a great introduction into hunting uh whether it's a, a new hunter who's older or uh your your kids so i know that this year i'm taking out my daughter who just turned seven and she's really excited to get out there and hear some gobbles for the first time hopefully i can seal the deal but uh all i really want is to get her out there to hear the gobble to 
uh, maybe see a strutter work his way in and just depending on how I feel is if I'll, I'll, uh, I'll take the shot or not but um, first and foremost just get him out get him excited uh, and, and basically just get him outside so Jim is going to talk to us about the wild turkey uh, he's going to give us a little bit of a, a state of the union of the, the turkey hunting or the turkey population here in Iowa amongst other things really awesome episode if I do say so myself but before we get into today's episode we have to remind you that the new Iowa Atlas is out and on this Iowa Atlas it kind of showcases um, based off of different counties it showcases all the places that you can hunt, right? All the all the public land that you can hunt, boat landings, you know, what counties hold certain game and trapping and fishing regulations and hunting regulations. And it's just a, a really good source of information to keep in your truck, um, you know, in case uh, your phone goes out or you need to know uh, specific boundaries or areas of uh, the state where you can go out and uh, hunt and fish. So it's just a real good resource to have. On top of that, you have have this podcast and you can find this podcast on iTunes or wherever you download your um, podcasts at. And last but not least, well, I shouldn't say last. We have two more things. We have the magazine, the Iowa Sportsman magazine, and you can subscribe to that by going to the Iowa Sportsman website, iowasportsman.com, and you can click the link to subscribe to the magazine. And you can also uh, just while you're on the website, read all the, the blog articles. I mean, there's a tons of great articles, not only in the magazine, but uh, here on the podcast, we do a lot of discussion, discussing discussions. I can't talk right now, but we also have a ton of great articles on the website as well. So it's uh, the perfect trifecta of all things Iowa sportsmen. And the best part about it is these principles can transfer over to not just Iowa, but all the surrounding Midwestern states. So uh, there's that. We've now we've got the introduction out of the way. Let's get into today's main topic, which is turkeys, with Iowa Department of Natural Resources biologist Jim Coffee. All right, on the phone with me today from the Iowa DNR, Mr. Jim Coffee. How you doing, man? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. So today we are talk. We're gonna. Eventually, we're going to start talking about uh, turkey, right? It's it's that time of year where we're we've been inside way too long. We want to get outside. We want to you know we want to get out there and start chasing turkeys. But before we get into all that, uh, I want to ask you a little bit about what you do. What is your role within the Iowa DNR? Yeah, so so we, every, every biologist in the DNR wears many many hats, <laughs> and uh, so my technical title is I'm the forest wildlife biologist. Uh, which means I deal with those species that have uh, forest as their main component of their habitat. And most often I, I'm referred to as the turkey biologist, but I deal with, with squirrels and grouse and and uh, those species associated. And, of course, deer are part of, of what I work with as well. So, right. Um, but, but whenever the phone rings, we deal with lots of things. I'm the wild pig coordinator for the state. I, I'm the self-appointed armadillo biologist. Um, you know, <laughs> just a little bit of everything, and that's the fun part of this job is you never know what happens when the phone rings so uh what is the state of the union for armadillos in iowa you know it's been a slow year but two years ago (laughs) (laughs) two years ago we actually had i think almost upwards of 40 40 reports really uh, yeah yeah so it's a species that's been moving north for about the last 50 60 years and and uh, we always joke that they would never cross the missouri river in missouri and 
I used to talk to the Missouri biologist, and he said, well, you know, they're up up to uh, Columbia, and then they're up to Kirksville, and, and he says, they're up to the Iowa border, and I said, no, they haven't stopped, they're still moving, so yeah. <laughs> we get a few reports every year. Yeah, it's it's kind of funny uh, you brought that up, because when I used to live down in Alabama, and you'd see them all, on, all the time, right? Yep. But Iowa, every year the news, you see, oh, there's a moose that made his way in or there's a black bear that came down or hey oh god there's a mountain lion around here somewhere you know like all all these species that are seen in iowa or documented in iowa but really don't call it home we don't consider it their home yep armadillos usually don't make the front page of the news like mountain lions and mooses do right right (laughs) so that's what we always talk about dan with wildlife is it's wild. It's we never know. Now we make some generalistic assumptions that you know moose and elk are extirpated from Iowa. Yeah. But that doesn't mean we can't have wandering animals coming in. And that, and you make a great point. Is we even get an occasional mountain lion in Iowa and, and documented mountain lion sightings. But we often refer to in the biology of the world is we don't have a population. We don't have breeding. Um, sustaining population. So right. we may get a, a, a wolf move through the state of Iowa out of Wisconsin at some point, but that doesn't really mean we have wolves in Iowa, per yeah. se. Yeah. It's, uh, I, I just, you know, and the older I get, the more you read, and you know, you read these stories of all the wildlife and how it used to be, you know, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, 300 years ago, and how there used to be elk and antelope in Iowa, and there was hardly any trees, you know, 1,000 years ago in Iowa, and, and and, uh, you know, the big grasslands that we all look. Yeah, it's an ever-changing environment, yeah. absolutely. That's one of the toughest parts of our jobs as, as, as biologists is it still is a changing environment. And, and man has a lot of influence on that change. And the wildlife tries to adapt to it. And we're trying to, you know, balance that, that wildness of Iowa with the, the sociological side of the people of Iowa and be productive, but yet, you know, keep everything in balance. And yep. we always joke that the, the wildlife part of our job is pretty easy. It's the people part that becomes difficult. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I hear that, especially talking with uh, the law enforcement side of things <laughs> for the DNR. So, um, so as a wildlife biologist, you know, today we're talking about turkey and you're, you're on here as a, a turkey specialist. Uh, what other animals do you kind of focus on throughout your year other than wild turkey? So, yeah, like I said, I, I, I wear many hats for the DNR and, and it kind of goes with the season. I like to focus as much of my time as I can on turkeys, but we're obviously concerned about the, the little remnant population of rough grouse we have up in northeast Iowa. Um, I do coordinate, you know, again, the, the wild pigs for the state of Iowa because that's something that we are seeing happen in other states. And luckily we don't have um, the wild pig numbers that we do like they do in other states, so I'm trying to stay on top of that. And then I spend a lot of my time working um, just with our other biologists and, and working with deer. Deer consume a lot of our, our time in spotlight surveys and hunter surveys and, and things like that. So, like I said, it's, it kind of goes seasonally, just kind of like wildlife. Whatever the season is, is kind of what we're transitioning to. It's just that we tend to think maybe three months or four months in advance. You know, right. so I've been I've been working on turkeys for a couple, three months now, and wish I could spend more time with them. But you just got to be uh, ahead of the game when, right. you're, when you're working with them. Right. So where's your office out of? Yeah, so I'm, I'm located out of Sheraton, Iowa, which is about an hour south of Des Moines. Okay. And we, we have three research stations in Iowa. Uh, we have one up at Clear Lake, one at Boone, and one at Sheraton. And they're, they're kind of evenly distributed with the, with the species that we work with. 
office. So our Clear Lake office in north central Iowa is kind of in that very pothole region, and they do a, a lot of waterfowl work and wetlands work. And our Boone Research Station is kind of our you know middle part of the state, the grasslands, and they work with pheasants and quail and, and then all of our non-game species out there. And then Sheraton traditionally has kind of been of our forest wildlife research station where we had our, our deer and our turkey were our main emphasis. Gotcha. Okay. So spring's coming. And, uh, you know, I want to springs here. Springs here. Yeah. <laughs> I forgot the old, uh, the old groundhog said he's coming early. That's right. Yeah. Oh, and I forgot I'm a groundhog biologist too. Oh, well, <laughs> no, that's, that's hilarious. Cause is there any, is that just like made up or is there any, this may sound like a dumb question. Is there any scientific proof that, uh, let's say a groundhog may come out of his hole in the spring based off of these, uh, statistics or facts or, or anything like that. Yeah, I'd have, I'd have, you know, I couldn't cite any papers or not, yeah. but I would go back to more folklore is that, yeah, these are, these are hibernating animals that, um, have spent time underground. And as, as the day length gets longer, even though they're underground, there's some, some stimulus that starts to tell them to think about coming out. And so they come out and they, they do that little first peak of the, out the you know the nose out and it either tells them to go back in and stay warmed up and don't burn any energy or hey come out and start grazing and getting ready because what we know with wildlife a lot of times is that first one out of the hole um you know the first one ready to go to breed in the spring may have the most prolific young and 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 be able to sustain populations better so it's i'm sure it's an evolutionary thing that's told them hey stick your nose out let's see if it's time to do some things if not let's curl back up and read a good book for another month or two and we'll try it again later gotcha and I'm sure a lot of that has to do with snowfall and temperature and, sure. and yeah. uh, all that good stuff. But. And we see that in many species. You know, yeah. we look at we look at owls breeding in February. That's so that then when they're young, they're ready to go. That's right when the rabbits are starting to reproduce and the mice are coming out and and just providing a lot of, of quick early food resource to make sure that their their young get fed first. And, you know, we're seeing eagles start to, to hatch right now. And, you know, most of us aren't even thinking about, you know, spring spring mating rituals and, and ha- hatching, but yet those those other birds that are re- uh, relying on that food resource have already started a month and a half ago. Right. So it's all a timing issue. Yeah, all timing. So it's that time of year where, uh, you know, we're going to start driving down the road and we're going to see some shredders out in the field and it gets me fired up. Um, and, you know, you start seeing... You know, I got trail cameras of, of turkeys, you know, coming in and whatnot. But uh, the first question I kind of have for you is in, in the research that you've done over the last couple of years and what you're seeing when you do any type of surveys or research, how is the turkey population doing in the state of Iowa? So that's a great question, and it's something that, you know, we, we're always trying to figure out how to do better at, and it's not just Iowa, it's across the country, all the turkey biologists. And we, we've realized we've kind of lived on our laurels for the last, oh, you know, 15, 20 years, we had really great numbers, and, and we maybe thought maybe they'd always be great, and, and we're starting to see, you know, some, some downward trends, not just in Excuse me, not just in Iowa, but across the country that have us have us concerned. Um, turkeys are a really unique species. They're tough to tough to get good surveys on them. It's it's difficult to do. So we rely on basically a couple of things, and one is is hunter reports. And, and even though some hunters might get upset, you know, that I don't want to report my harvest to the DNR, you know, we're managing their their turkey populations, their yeah. turkey numbers, and when, when they're not reporting, they're only hurting themselves. 
So we rely on that harvest statistic as one, one way to look at what's happening out there. And then we look at a summer brood survey to kind of look at overall productivity of how the hens are doing uh, nesting-wise and then how those poults that are produced, what their survival rates are. And that gives us some pretty rough guesstimates of what we should see. But realizing that turkey numbers can fluctuate pretty pretty dramatically from year to year and, and really over a five-year period as well. So, you know, I, I try to be as, as optimistic as I can, but I tell myself I'm a, a pessimistic optimist um, that turkey numbers are on the downward slide, and, and we're just trying to figure out why that is and is there something we can do to help turn that around. Gotcha. So let's get into a little bit of detail of that, of whether it's your own personal opinion or what uh, your research and data are showing you. What is the, um, what do you guys feel are some of the reasons for this little decline that we're, we're seeing? Yeah, you know, and that's a great question. It's hard to say. There, there is no silver bullet. Um, I'm kind of under the old school that it's a stressor on a stressor on a stressor that these birds do really well. And, and we've just added additional stresses to them. So maybe they're, we're just kind of pushing that population down. Uh, a lot of different turkey biologists around the country have a lot of different opinions. Um, one of my theories is that, that our timber is over-maturing, that it's it's 40 years older than it used to be, and it's not as, as uh, good a shape as it was, and we've changed the landscape again some more. Um, Illinois, they're kind of looking down the black fly route, that maybe the black flies are having an impact on young birds, and we're not just seeing the productivity. Yeah. Um, but typically, you know, it still boils down to habitat. If you, if you have really good habitat, you know, that release one of those stressors and they can kind of overcome some of those things. Gotcha. In Iowa, we're, we're doing, uh, in conjunction with Iowa State, we're looking at what's called LPDV, lymphoproliferative disease, um, to see if that's on the landscape and see is that a stressor that we weren't aware of that might be driving populations down. Um, they've been studying that on the East Coast and in Maine and, and New York and, and uh, Pennsylvania for a few years and, and start to see some pretty high prevalence rates of that out there. So, there's just lots of things. We're not sure. Yeah. That's, that's the short answer. So I'm, uh, I'm sitting in my tree stand uh, during deer season. And, yep. uh, you know, this year has been, uh, was the first year, or I shouldn't say the first year. I've, I've seen bobcats every year, but this mm-hmm. is the first year I've seen three or more different bobcats from mm-hmm. the tree. What is a wild turkey? And we can just talk specifically here in Iowa. What are the biggest threats as far as predation to a wild turkey? Well, it, it really goes with the time of the year. And, and I would not be one of those people to tell you that bobcats don't eat turkeys. But I, doing bobcat research, as I have, um, we found that, you know, most of their diet consists of small mammals, um, squirrels, rabbits, uh, voles, moles, mice, that things. So would a bobcat eat a turkey? Sure, if they could. But it's not as easy as eating a mouse that's much more plentiful on the landscape than others, others, uh, other critters. Right. Um, but, you know, in the springtime, we look at those ground nesting predators. So you look at things and people think of, oh, raccoons, that's, you know, they get the turkey nests. Well, everything eats eggs. And so everything eats turkey nests. And yeah. turkeys have adapted to that. And I often joke, I'm like, you know, it's a good thing everything eats turkeys because turkey eggs. Because if they didn't, we'd have a lot of turkeys and I'd be taking different phone calls. Right. Um, so, you know, but we but we always expect that the turkeys will be at least somewhat successful. In many cases, that's only 30% successful. Um, things like blue jays and crows and, and snakes and squirrels, they all eat eggs. And, blue jays, uh, really? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Basically, 
basically everything eats eggs. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a high-protein resource, and it's out there, and the hens know that. They do the best they can, and if the nest gets busted up, they try to go off and have another nest um, if they can. So, um, yeah, everything does. And, and so that's, that's, that's probably the main thing that we worry about is those nests being successful. Um, but we often get hung up in the big predators. We like to think about the big predators, you know. Right. So, yeah, it could be the bobcats or the coyotes or those things. Those animals are like us. I hate to say it. They're lazy, too. <laughs> they take whatever's easy and available. They're not out actively searching for those things. But if they come across them, they're going to try, yeah. you know, just like you and I would. But I, I always joke along this line. It's kind of a long joke. But I said, you know, I like to eat lobster once in a while. But, you know, I'm going to walk across an Iowa prairie and I'm going to see hamburger, 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 hamburger. Right. You know, if I run across the lobster, I'm probably going to try to eat it. But the odds of it are pretty slim. <laughs> so I just take what's available. So, so uh, let's, let's say you, meant, you mentioned something about a nest getting busted up. Um, how, how long after a nest is, um, you know, destroyed until that hen goes back into, I guess, a breeding cycle to where a tom can come and breed her again that th- that same year. Yep. So, so a lot of it has to do with the physiology of the bird and where she's at in her in her incubation cycle. Um, some of those birds could just be laying, and if that nest gets busted up, they'll just go over and basically just continue again. There's a general thought that they'll wait a week or so and maybe get bred again or, or something. Um, if they're past a certain point of incubation, um, it may take longer for them to get back in the cycle, or they may not even go back in the cycle if they're too late in the incubation, because their hormones of their body are changing, and they're going more from an incubation stage of life to a brooding stage of life, and so they're kind of past that reactionary time of their of laying eggs and incubating, and we typically think of that as being about day 18 with turkeys. So a lot of times if a nest is busted up after the 18th day of incubation, there's a chance that she might not um, go back and nest again because her body started to change into a mothering type of a mode instead of an incubation type of mode. Okay. Yeah, yeah that makes but a lot of key, sense. Yeah, but the key there really is, is those two-year-old hens. Two-year-old hens have become much better at nesting, and they try to nest as soon as they can. They try to pick a place where they were successful the year before, if possible. And if that nest gets broken up, she'll try again. And if that nest gets broken up, she'll try again. And they'll keep trying. And I've seen turkey nests clear into August and hatches into September, and those are from your mature hens. Whereas those juvenile hens don't have that that same uh, stick-to-itiveness. They may only have one nesting cycle during the year, and then if that gets broken up, they're just like, I'm done. I don't know what else to do. So, yeah, it's so funny. Those- it's funny you mentioned that because I had a, I had a, tra- I had a couple trail camera pictures throughout. Uh, I think it was 2017 that I could have swore were off. And I was talking about you know, like where, that the date and time was off, but it, it wasn't. And there were, I don't know, what's, what's the baby, the name for a baby poults. turkey? A poult. Okay, yeah. so there were very small poults in late August mm-hmm. uh, walking around with this hen. And I said, okay, that doesn't make sense. That shouldn't, they shouldn't be this small this time of year. But, you know, now you saying that, it kind of clicked for me. It was like, they can breed all the way up into that, uh, into that time frame, And I can say that, you know, just being out driving the countryside, it's not, it's not typical, but I've seen, you know, strutting toms all the way out until mid to late July. Yep. Sure. Yep. 
and that's what we kind of forget about sometimes is that we think of turkey and this is kind of the fun part i like talking with people about is i get a lot of phone calls is you know we need to push the turkey season forward because the turkeys are strutting the turkeys are strutting and i'm like turkeys have been strutting since december yeah <laughs> and turkeys will strut into july because they're male turkeys if, if somebody wants to breed with me i'm ready to go yeah you know? and the only thing i can do is show myself off um so turkeys are doing a lot of turkey stuff when we're not out there but but that that peak is going to be in that late April May time frame when we can take advantage of that as hunters, and and those hens are actively seeking those males, and that's why we're we're good at spring turkey hunting because we're taking advantage of that male's testosterone and his ability to maybe move when he shouldn't be moving um, to seek out that hen. Right, uh, which makes turkey hunting fun because you know it's, it's the absolute opposite of nature. In 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 the wild, the the male stands there and gobbles and struts, and the hens come to him. And as hunters, we're trying to sit still and have him come to us, and the battle ensues. Who gives yeah. up first? Who moves? Who does the wrong thing? And that's what makes turkey hunting fun. Yeah. I, I, I can't tell you how much I love turkey hunting. I mean, I like some other things more, but I've killed a lot of turkeys in my day, and there's something about that, that cat and mouse, especially with a really vocal tom, that there's nothing better in 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 I guess in the hunting world, he will literally wrap you around a tree. I know. He will take you to the highs and the lows, and he will make you think you are the best and the worst turkey hunter <laughs> in the same day. That's a fact. That's a fact. Where you know, or and here's the perfect example that pisses me off the most is he is responding to every single call that you know he's cutting you off when you're you yeah. know you're calling he's, you're, he's cutting you off and he starts he's working his way oh there he is i see him all he has to do is come you know another 100 yards he comes out to, he comes another 50 yards and then he just stops yep. it's like dude you've you've came you've come a half mile why are you now stopping 50 yards out from me so i can't shoot because so. <laughs> nature says i stand here and you come to me that's right that's yeah. right oh uh, that's funny okay so i got a couple uh questions um about the the breeding cycle here and that is you know in, in deer hunting uh, from research and my understanding is that somewhere around November 14th, and this is on a nationwide study, that yep. November 14th tends to be the date that the most does get bred. Yeah. Okay. So is, the peak of the rut. Peak yep. of the rut, yep. So is there a peak of the strut, so, so to speak? So, so a couple of different things are The way I would ask that question is when is the peak of nest initiation or when is the peak of incubation initiation so the peak strut and this is something that's baffled turkey hunters and turkey biologists for years we do what's called chronological gobbling counts to look at how they ramp up their gobbling and and we're still not quite sure how that um, correlates with with the nesting and the breeding of the females and every turkey hunter has their theory um, of when that occurs and why that occurs and they shouldn't gobble when the hens are coming to them but yet they do and then they get quiet and, and what's going on and, we, and we're all just you know turning ourselves in circles trying to figure out what that means so we tend to look at what we would call the peak nest initiation or the peak um, incubation times and in iowa we're going to start to see some of our our majority of our hens starting to incubate usually the the third week of april is where that's going to be at uh, with the with the peak of incubation being probably about the first week of may that means that those birds are out there and they're on those nests and they're really trying to incubate 
incubate those eggs and get them off, which for a turkey hunter sometimes means they're not available to the gobblers. So those yeah. gobblers are willing to make a few more mistakes because there's not as many hens available. But as turkey hunters, we want to be out there when they're gobbling. Sometimes that's actually before the hens are receptive because the gobbler's gobbling trying to attract the hens and she has no intention of going to him because she's not ready to breed and ready to start that nest initiation. So it's a little bit different than the rut with bucks, but because it's drawn out a little bit longer with some different activities. Okay. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, yeah, it does. So yeah. how long from when a tom breeds a hen until yeah. that hen goes and starts to nest? Yeah, so again, that's going to be driven by daylight and day length. Um, so that could be, it typically it takes about a day to do a day and a half for an egg to move through the, through the biological process of being developed. Um, but a lot of times with, with what we know about turkeys, and, and some of this is speculation, some of it is based on what we know about domestic poultry, is that she could breed with that gobbler and, and actually store that semen and then release it as she needs it. She doesn't have to have daily breedings um, like some people think. So it could be as quick as a breeding, and then two or three days later, she's starting to produce an egg that moves through. And then she'll produce an egg about every day, day and a half, until that clutch of approximately 12 eggs is, is laid. Okay. Um, so, and that's that's kind of the typical is twelve eggs, but it could be nine, it could be fourteen, somewhere in the middle of there. Okay, so I've always been baffled how it, it, you know, from a scientific standpoint, a mammal, uh, a penis goes into a vagina, and you know, semen is what fertilizes the eggs. Yep. But that's not necessarily the, necessarily the case with birds, right? Birds are yeah, birds are a different species, different different breed altogether. And so we're actually talking about um, what I call an oviduct um, and essentially cloaca, which is, is the, the, the opening that allows the excrement to come out. But at the same time, that excrement, that opening also has the, the reproductive organs for both the male and the female. So there is real, no, no real penis. But what happens is that in the breeding cycle, the female will, will bow down on the ground or, or sit tight to the ground the male will come up and stand on her back and get himself positioned, and she'll kind of roll her tail off to the side, and he'll push his tail down, um, and their cloacas will essentially rub together, and there's a transmission uh, of, the, of the semen into that oviduct of the female or into the cloaca of the female, which goes up the reproductive side, not the excrement side uh, of that opening. Okay. Um, and so it's a little bit different for birds, but it's kind of the basics are the same. Right. It still takes two uh, to make it happen. So when the egg then passes down that tube, mm-hmm. it the it touches the semen, and that is how it's fertilized. Well, well, the semen is going to go up in okay. just like it does in males, and it's going to get up in there. And it's, it turns into a little storage receptacle, so they can be fertilized at different times. But essentially, that semen is traveling up um, and finding that egg, and then the egg is moving down the oviduct. And as it does that, it's depositing. You know, it's developing the yolk, it's developing the albumin, and then it's developing that calcium eggshell on the outside. And that takes a day and a half or so for that to happen. So as one egg is moving down, another egg is starting that process. Okay. And as that egg, as one egg is deposited and that next egg is moving farther down, there's another egg that's starting that process. So I've, I've seen hen turkeys in the springtime that actually have, you know, hard eggs inside of them and eggshells that are, that are soft and squishy and then eggs that are just yolks with albumin around that have not started to deposit eggshell yet so it's a continuous conveyor belt style process so they don't lay they don't lay let's say eight eggs at a single time 
Oh, absolutely not. Okay. No. no okay. No. And so that becomes part of that process. We talked about go back to predators that makes it so difficult for, for turkeys is this is a bird that roosts in a tree at night. That's a, that's a, a um, biological process that they have developed probably to keep themselves protected, to get yeah. off the ground and, and, and roost at night. They have few predators in the trees. But when it comes to the egg-laying process, those leg, eggs are laid on these, these bowl-shaped nests on the ground, very poorly-shaped nests. Um, and so she's going to be on the ground laying that egg, that nest, for you know, 12, 15, 18 days and not staying on that nest as she lays it, but that nest is vulnerable. And then when she commits to incubating, she's on that nest for 28 to 30 days on the ground. And then when the poults hatch, it's about 10 to 14 days before they can start to flutter fly up into the branches. So she's taking almost two months of her life now and putting it on the ground where normally she wouldn't be on the ground. And so that increases that female's uh, vulnerability by, by quite a bit. Man, that's very interesting. That's some stuff I did not know. Um, so she's she's vulnerable in, in that time. And you said poorly... Um, Poor, poorly made nests and yeah. this is this is uh what confuses me is because i i hear this a lot about turkeys how they're not very good nesters like making nests when there's other birds in the animal kingdom that make these extravagant nests yep. why is it that th- this is where they lack and that and that's common for what we would call gallinaceous birds ground nesting birds don't develop good nests even hen pheasants, you know, it's usually just a, a poorly shaped grass bowl. And with turkeys, it's usually just a poorly shaped leaf bowl uh, on the timber floor. They're not um, building a structure like we think of with eagles or even robins or something like that. Because they're just using the depression of the ground to, to basically cuddle the eggs into one spot. Um, and, and they don't want something that looks extravagant because then it becomes visible. Right. They want it to blend in. And if you've seen turkey eggs in the wild or, you know, or anyplace else, um, they're very mottled. They're very camouflaged to blend in with that light and the shadows and things. Um, hen turkeys uh, have brown-tipped feathers for that exact reason. The males have shiny-tipped feathers because, again, they want to be seen and they want the light to reflect off of them. But the hens blend into that, that drabby earth tones to help protect themselves. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So if you, if you put the time and energy into building a nest, that takes time and energy. And we're not – a lot of other birds build nests to attract mates. And turkeys aren't building a nest to attract mates. They're building a nest to conceal and to to prolong and and make that nest more successful. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. All right, so diet, you know. um, And I want to talk about diet from the standpoint of, you know— I, I have to relate to deer hunting because I know deer hunting, right? Um, and in the certain times of year, deer deer eat certain things. During the hunting season, is there a a food source that, or a a food or a protein or whatever that they focus on more than any other time of the year? Well, it's very seasonal, absolutely. And so turkeys are, are very much omnivores. I mean, they'll eat anything that they can, um, anything that looks like it's a bug, including rocks and sticks and whatever they'll try to digest. They have a gizzard, so that gizzard can grind very well. So if it happens to be a, a, a rose hip you know, or a raspberry bud or something, they can grind that up and eat it. We often think of turkeys, though, being those you know acorn eaters. That's what they're after. Well, yeah, that's great in, in, in August and September and October when they're plentiful. But sometimes come spring, there's not a lot of acorns left on the ground after the deer and the squirrels and everything else that, that's eating them up. So they're going to be very seasonal. 
Uh, I, in the springtime, you know, whenever I shoot a turkey, I always cut the gizzard open and the crop just to see what's in there. And we're always going to find greens. They're always going to find some kind of a green vegetation that, that's probably a primary component of their diet. Um, because really there's not much insects out there that time of the year. Uh, we're, we're lucky in Iowa because we have a lot of cornfields and, and a lot of them intermixed with our woodland habitat. So they're always looking for waste grain. They're going to be scratching that waste grain up, even if they're out there picking up stones for grit and things like that. Um, and then, you know, come fall, if you're happy enough to, to shoot a fall bird, you're, you're probably going to find those those acorns and, and other types of hard mast in there. But they're eating raspberries. They're eating insects. They're eating whatever they can. And that's what uh, their diet allows them to survive so well on is everything. Right. I heard, um, maybe you can confirm this or not, but I heard that wild turkeys are one, are a big threat to small pheasants. And that we fought that for forever, and and no, so no. The, the okay. yeah, the, the difference is is that turkeys will peck at anything, yeah, um, and so but you know so there's a difference, and it's like saying never with anything is that it may happen, but turkeys are not actively seeking out pheasants for food. Okay, you know they're not actively seeking out nests. We always hear that they're they find the nest and they stomp on the eggs to destroy the pheasant eggs because they want that nesting site for themselves. No, that doesn't happen. But if you've ever seen a, a baby quail. You know, a day-old baby quail is about the size of your thumbnail. You know, it looks like a bumblebee. And yeah. If I'm out and I'm a turkey and I see that, there's a chance I might pick at that. But I'm not going to pass up the grasshoppers and the, the leaf hoppers and everything else that are out there looking for baby quail, looking for baby pheasants. That's just that's just an old wives' tale. Okay. Now I want to I talk a little bit about what we all love hearing about, and that's the hunting strategy uh, time sure. of this. You know, we often think of, you know, that time of year, turkeys are in the tree, they fly down, they spend their day, then they fly back up. Is there specific terrain features or areas in a timber or over the countryside that turkeys like to gather in? Yeah, and, and of course in Iowa we're fairly limited because obviously they're a, a, tree, a species associated with timber and trees. So that's going to be our first component is we have to find access to those types of areas. But it's assuming that we have that type of an area. I like to put turkeys in the same scenario from, for, from a fishing standpoint of like um, a nice largemouth bass. If you go to your favorite lake and, and you catch a largemouth bass off of a certain drop point or a certain old rocky ledge or a certain stump and you remove that bass, when you go back to fish that lake, where do you go? Same. You go back to that spot because yeah. somebody's moved back into that. So as you start to turkey hunt, you start to figure out these places that turkeys like to go to. And then we go back to that biology that these males like to strut and gobble. They like to be heard and seen. So they like to go up to these nice, big, open, visual places, these places where that thunderous gobble will carry through the valleys to try to attract those females. And they do the best they can to let those black feathers shine in you know, the openings and to get that voice out. And that's one reason why they gobble in the trees in the morning, too, is that's a high vantage point. I can gobble, and if the hens didn't roost with me, they're going to know where I'm at. And so that's what they use that to their advantage. Yeah. And that's uh, uh, like that that fish analogy is perfect because I have a spot turkey hunting where I don't even like to go there anymore because it's almost so automatic that, you know, I, I can get in there, I can call, they fly down, they walk out and I shoot them. 
every year I have encounters like that. And it's one of those spots where I take a new hunter, right? So they get the full experience of the gobbling and, and then coming in. And then I go do something else and try to make it a little bit more challenging just, you know, because of. Well, you've learned a pattern and those birds are, 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 they are a bird of habit. You know, again, there's no, there's no advantage to them for trying something new. If the old thing works, if I can go out on this ridge and goblin hens come to me, you know, why waste the extra time walking around doing stuff I don't need to do? Uh, so that's, yeah, that's perfect. But at the same time, I'm sure, even though it seems so automatic on that ridge, like we talked about earlier, there's lots of days <laughs> where you're like, he gobbled and he threw them, but he went the other direction. Why? That's right. Why I think the ladies got him, got to him. Right. And uh, so that's, that just goes back to the what I like to talk about with turkey hunting itself is persistence. Yeah. Is He's going to frustrate you. It's just who has the most persistence, who's going to keep going out and trying more and more. And, and, and then working with your confidence, knowing that uh, I'm confident that I'm calling right. It's just that today is the day he's decided not to come in. Right. Um, and, and he'll twist your confidence because, you know, I've been turkeying a long time and I make a call and I'm like, boy, that didn't sound like a turkey to me. You know, I must have screwed up. He doesn't care. Now, I've heard the, the worst turkey hunters in the world are better than, than wild turkey hens when it comes to calling. <laughs> you know, so he doesn't care. He just wants to know what's a turkey over there. Right. All right. So um, is there anything that Tom's like that is, uh, I don't want to say automatic, but, you know, is there something in their DNA or th- their character that um, uh, once a-, a hunter knows this might make it easier for them to be successful? Yep. Yep, and I would say that falls in all mammals of the world, in, in, including humans, is males cannot stand when females don't pay attention to them. <laughs> and so the biggest mistake I think most turkey hunters make is we love to hear that turkey gobble, myself included. And so we yelp, and he gobbles back. And we're like, oh, my God, that was so awesome. I've got to hear it again. So I yelp again, and he gobbles back. That was the greatest sound in the world. I'm going to yelp again. Well, every time you yelp at him, he goes, I know you heard me. And biologically, you're supposed to come to me. So eventually, I'm just going to stand here and keep gobbling so you know where to walk to. But if I can train myself not to yelp at that gobbler, eventually his male machismo, his testosterone will get to him. And he's like, you know what? I don't know why she's not coming, but she should. But I think I'll just walk over there and see what's going on. Because there might be another male that I don't like, and she doesn't need to be associating with him. And so it just gets into that brain games, and I call that the dance. It's who talks to who first. So as hunters, we probably call twice as much or four times as much as we need to. But we just can't resist it because we love hearing that turkey gobble back to us. That's a fact, man. I I am a chronic overcaller uh, <laughs> just because I love hearing turkey gobbles, man. Yep, it, 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 we, we can't overcome it. There's yeah. nothing like, and when you know, like you said, when he calls and he's gobbling at you, that will put chills on your spine because he knows you're talking to him. Yeah. And, and it's now a relationship, and then now I have to work on. Yeah. So uh, from a, I know this is probably with all species, the male of all species, but are turkey are turkey aggressive? Are they territorial? Uh, do they fight a lot? Yeah, they do, and and, and that is that that's basic biology of who's going to win over that breeding rights, and, and we kind of refer to turkeys kind of being in lex, 
like um, prairie chickens and other things. They display, they show off. Sometimes the dominant bird, just like in deer, if you've watched a lot of deer, the dominant buck does not fight. Everybody knows who the dominant buck is, and there's no sense really fighting with the dominant buck. It's the subdominant bucks that are all positioning themselves for when Big Joe dies, who's stepping up next. Mm -hmm. And and occasionally one of those young bucks will say, you know what, Big Joe's not as big as he thinks he is. I'm going to go over and try to have a little talk with him. And usually Big Joe puts him back in his place. Um, but And that's kind of the same way with turkeys. It's, it's a lot of times the two-year-olds and three-year-old birds spend more time fighting than pecking with each other because they know they're not going to go after that bigger dominant male. But there's always a chance there's an extra hen and there's a lot of breeding going on that somebody sneaks off and, and gets a little uh, um, non-dominant breeding going on as well. Yeah. So, yeah. But that's just the general nature of, of all you know, species, I would say, is that the, there's there's some territorialism, there's some machismo that goes on with, I've earned my right to be in charge of this group or this area um, for the animals that, that I am overseeing. One thing that, uh, talking about dominance, one thing that I've uh, seen over the years is, and, you know, I've seen several turkeys strutting in a field at one time, but mm-hmm. they're not real close together. When I've you know, I call a group of toms in and it seems to be only one is in full strut. And I feel like that would be the dominant bird. And every time that another one tries to puff up, it's almost like he gets, he, he, there's some aggression towards him. It's like, dude, no, no, no. I'm the strutter. You just can follow me around. (laughs) Well, sometimes I also put it in, in, I like to look at things like a human standpoint too, is Sometimes those some dominant birds don't really know what they're supposed to be doing, but they act, I'm just going to look at follow his lead. And he's strutting, so I'm going to kind of strut because it seems to be the right thing to happen. Yeah. Um, and then oftentimes, you know, kind of those subdominant birds will all kind of strut amongst themselves to kind of show off to each other. But again, we're not real confident in why we're doing it, but we're out here doing it anyway. Mm-hmm. And then you get the jakes that just don't know what they're doing. And they just <laughs> run around in circles all day long. And, and I look back and I call those my junior high boys. You know, yeah. we know we're supposed to be out here with the girls, but we don't know what we're supposed to be doing. So we'll just all run around and act really stupid and, and they'll like us because of that. I haven't found my purpose yet, but I know yeah. I'm supposed to be out here doing something. I'm supposed to be doing something. So, yeah, exactly. So I think there's a lot of that in the turkey world, too. And sometimes I don't get too hung up on, you know, the turkey hunter on who's the dominant bird, you know, because. You, I, I will guarantee that 90% of the people that are listening to this is we're all going to take that first good ethical shot of oh, a yeah. bird that comes in gobbling and strutting, whether he's a four-year-old bird or a two-year-old bird. If he if he's strutting and gobbling, that's what we're out there for. I've, I've never passed a Tom because his beard wasn't long enough. I'll put it to you that way. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty hard. <laughs> so when it comes to uh, a Tom, right, a, a, a tom and a hen interaction this tom puffs up and he's showcasing himself to the hen what is it that that makes him do that 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 I, I'm, I'm having a hard time explaining this but or asking this question but you know, like a girl, she'll look at a guy with a whole bunch of big muscles and she'll go, ooh, wow. You know, and Yeah, they, it's kind of the same thing. It's, it's he showing, look, I can provide, but my genes are going to be the best genes that are out here and, and you are silly not to breed with me because your offspring will be the best offspring in the land. 
I am the one that you need to be with. And and that's, you know, that's the strutting. That's making myself look big. At the same time that making themselves look big is also that visual cue. That hen could be 200 yards away looking through the timber in the spring that's open or looking from ridgetop to ridgetop. And he wants to make sure she sees him so that she'll make that 200-yard trek through the timber to get to him. Um, so I, I don't think a turkey, I don't think she sits there and says, oh, you know, that turkey's a little bit bigger than that turkey. What comes out is the aggression of, of those males and, and who is the one that's really shown amongst the other males that I'm the one that's that's supposed to be here. And you, we've all seen it. There's four turkeys gobbling out and strutting out in the field, and the hens are just walking around. I'm like, yeah. well, what do we care about you guys? And they'll spend hours strutting. But at some point, that visual cue kicks in with that hen, and she says, okay, now I'm ready to breed. And she's going to walk over to that one that she wants to, and she's going to hunker down on the ground, and it's going to happen in 15 seconds, and it's going to be over. Yeah. Does yeah. the does the drumming, the boom, boom, does that have a purpose? It does. It does, because that, that low-volume, low-frequency carries well through vegetation. It carries long distances, and those hens um, hear that, and they know that. And what I've always been amazed with turkeys in general is – is that you could make one yelp and that gobbler knows direction and distance. Yeah. And we'll go out there and call and call and call and everything beyond that first yelp, he doesn't care about. He knows which direction you are and how far you are. And now it's just a matter of how long he wants to take to get to you or how long he wants to wait and try for you to come to him. And so the same with that drumming. When they're drumming up in the tree or they're drumming on the ground, that's a low volume that pushes itself through the vegetation that those other turkeys can feel and sense and hear and know direction without yelping and gobbling and making a lot of extra noise. So I, 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 will, I will say this. My absolute favorite thing of turkey hunting, obviously, you hear the gobbles, right? Um, and you're, you're down on the ground. Uh, I don't typically use a blind, so I kind of just, I'm really mobile throughout my hunt. And I'm sitting down, and I know that there's a, a Tom in front of me 100 yards, and he's working his way, and then he shuts off. Yep. And, and then and maybe he... serious real quick. Yeah, and maybe he, maybe he goes, he's coming towards me, or maybe he stops and follows some hens. But when I hear behind me that boom... Boom. Oh if my that feel it. Oh man. I tell you what, if I could live a day like that every day, that's yep. a that that would be a good life. Yep. And when and when you know he's coming in, in yeah. front of you and then you hear that behind you and you convince yourself, how did he magically move? <laughs> you know, and then you start to tell yourself, No, there's two turkeys, no, yep. there's one turkey, and your brain is just spinning in circles You're about fried. what's happening. But you can't move and you can't move your eyeballs <laughs> and your heart's pounding through your chest. And, and that's why we turkey hunt. That's right. right there. Yeah. So are there any other interesting facts about uh, a turkey's um, biology or um, DNA or whatever that knowing this may help us be more successful? Yeah, I mean, just the, the one thing that I think is interesting about Iowa is, you know, and if we talk about turkeys across the nation, is there's four major subspecies, and, and the turkeys in Iowa are considered the eastern subspecies. And everybody has their preference over their species, subspecies they want to hunt. And I've always thought personally that the eastern is is probably comes across as one of the most wary and, and most comparable um, uh, challenges compared to some other places now, but it kind of depends on where you grow up at. And these are birds that have eyesight, 
that is, you know, six to ten times better than ours. They have hearing that's, that's six to ten times better than ours. Um, they're looking for every reason to run away from us when they can, when they sense danger or they hear something. And so the challenge just becomes is learning that biological components that we can work in our advantage uh, to be more successful in the field. Um, probably the biggest mistake that people make other than calling too much is moving too much. Because yeah. those turkeys are looking for movement. They're looking for that hen. And when they see something that doesn't look like a hen, that may be a threat, they're going to go the other way. In many cases, we're never even going to know that turkey was there because we made a move and he just saw us and slipped around and went the other direction quietly. Yeah. All right. So speaking of eyes, right, um, what, what do turkeys see you know it's this great eyeball um what is it about a a turkey sight that makes them so sensitive like they can pick off things from long distances yeah so so that's a great question and and it's been studied uh, many times and there's lots of theories on that but when we look at the biology of the eye itself it has both rods and cones and rods see black and whites and shades of gray and cones see colors and we know that turkeys have limited numbers of cones um, but they can see some color but the majority of it is black and white. And what we what we typically know about animals that see black and white is that we tend they tend to see crisper, they tend to see edges, they tend to see movement better. So when we're sitting against that big tree, you know, to, to block our silhouette, that turkey is seeing the edges of that tree. That's not necessarily seeing us against the tree. But if our shoulder peeks out on one side or the other or our arm as we're moving it, now that tree doesn't look like a tree anymore. It looks like a tree with something beside it. And they say to themselves, you know, I don't really need to go that direction. I'm going to go the other way. So they use those rods to pick out those subtle, crisp edges that give them an excuse not to see stuff. And that's why we as turkey hunters like to hunt later in the season, because as those bushes leaf out and things get thicker and thicker, that turkey's willing to come a little bit closer because he's looking for those those subtle differences. Yeah. Awesome. So. so their eyes are better. Uh yeah, so and then I should clarify is when I say they can see six to time, ten times better, you had the good question there is it's they can't see six to ten times farther. They can't see six to ten times better, but they see things crisper. Detailed, than we do. more contrast. They see those edges, yeah, that contrast. Okay, all right. Um, now, just for, how many years have you? Would you say you've been a turkey hunter? I shot my first turkey when I was ten years old, and I am fifty-two this year. Okay, so you got so, you got some seasons under your belt. I've got a few seasons under my. I've got lots of naps under my belt. <laughs> hey, I tell you what. As much as I like hearing the them spitting and drumming behind me, I also love those days where it gets warm and you just sit. You fall asleep with your shotgun right next to you, leaned up against the tree, and you just kind of forget about everything. Yep, there's nothing better than a nap in the woods. That's right. Absolutely. So. Um, let's see. What was I going to say here? Uh, Threw you off your topic there. Yeah, I know I did. I I I I, I had a moment of uh, reflection there. Uh, let's see here. So and that's part of turkey hunting too, Dan. Right. Is that I've always said a good turkey hunting story should take at least twice as long as the actual hunt because you will remember every time the wind changes and every time you crunch the leaf. That it's like it's like being in a car accident. You it, time slows down, right? And your mind records everything that happened. Right, right. All right. So here's here was my question: weather. All right. Yeah. Um, you know, weather plays a impact on just about every animal that's out there. Sure. But 
I've, I've tried, you know, we all love those days where it's a high pressure day. It's a crisp morning. The sun's coming up. There's hardly any wind. Uh, they're gobbling their heads off. It seems like on those days. Uh, and those days are easy, you know, just say for all intents and purposes, those days are easy to kill a turkey. But when there's high wind, when there's precipitation, when it's overly cloudy, um, is there a reason why they may be more vocal on some days than others? Lots of folk tales, lots of yeah. lots of theory that people have said, and, and we've studied barometric pressure. And then you get the theories that they gobble so much on one day, they're so exhausted they can't gobble the next day, and just lots of things going on. And, and what it really boils down to is accessibility to hens in most cases. But we've all had that day where we've called our buddies up and like, I didn't hear a turkey today, and he goes, Neither did I, neither did I. So there's something environmental wise that saying today is not a good day yeah. and, and we don't really know what that is and what turns them on or turns them off on certain days um, but we know that when we have those cool crisp nights and those low wind nights the, those turkeys are going to gobble in the morning and we want to hear those those things happen the thing that i would encourage people and it goes back to what i talked about earlier, earlier about persistence is you have to remember they're still out there yeah. They're just not being vocal on those days. So we have to put our good woodsmanship skills to place. They're probably still going to those same strutting zones like they have in the past. They may not be feeding or breeding quite as heavy on that day that they would other days, but they're still out there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I tell you what, man, uh, we've talked a lot about turkeys today. Uh, you've done a really good job at uh, doing your job and promoting the the wild turkey and uh man i tell you what i don't know about you but i'm excited to get out there in uh oh a handful of weeks and and it's coming really quick that's right i don't want it to come too quick because i still have some shed hunting that i want to do beforehand but uh hey i really appreciate your time thanks for doing what you do over there at the dnr and uh thanks for uh, coming on and talking turkeys with us Absolutely, anytime. I'm always like to talk turkeys with 